The Negro digs up his past. The American Negro must remake his past in order to make his future. Though it is orthodox to think of America as the one country where it is unnecessary to have a past, what is a luxury for the nation as a whole becomes a prime social necessity for the Negro. For him, a group tradition must supply compensation for persecution and pride of race, the antidote for prejudice. History must restore what slavery took away, for it is the social damage of slavery that the present generations must repair and offset. So among the rising democratic millions, we find the Negro thinking more collectively, more retrospectively than the rest, and opt out of the very pressure of the present to become the most enthusiastic antiquarian of them all. Vindicating evidences of individual achievement have, as a matter of fact, been gathered and treasured for over a century. Abibe Gregory's liberal-minded book on Negro notables in 1808 was the pioneer effort. It has been followed at intervals by less known and often less discriminated compendiums of exceptional men and women of African stock. But this sort of thing was on the whole pathetically overcorrective, ridiculously overlaudatory, it was apologetics turned into biography. A true historical sense developed slowly and with difficulty under such circumstances. But today, even if for the ultimate purpose of group justification, history has become less a matter of argument and more a matter of record. There is the definite desire and determination to have history well documented, widely known at least within race circles and administered as a stimulating and inspiring tradition for the coming generations. Gradually as the study of the Negro's past has come out of the vagaries of rhetoric and propaganda and become systematic and scientific, three outstanding conclusions have been established. First, that the Negro has been throughout the centuries of controversy an active collaborator and often a pioneer in the struggle for his own freedom and achievement. This is true to a degree which makes it more surprising that it has not been recognized earlier. Second, that by virtue of their being regarded as something exceptional, even by friends and well-wishers, Negroes of attainment and genius have been unfairly disassociated from the group and group credit lost accordingly. Third, that the remote racial origins of the Negro, far from being what the race in the world have been given to understand, offer a record of credible group achievement when scientifically viewed, and more important still, that they are aware of vital general interests because of the bearing upon the beginnings and early development of culture. With such crucial truths to document and establish, an ounce of fact is worth a pound of controversy. So the Negro historian today digs under the spot where his predecessor stood and argued. Not long ago, the public library of Harlem housed a special exhibition of books, pamphlets, prints, and old engravings that simply said to skeptic and believer alike, to scholar and schoolchild, to proud black and astonished white, here is the evidence. Assembled from the rapidly growing collections of the leading Negro book collectors and research societies, there were in these cases materials not only for the first true writing of Negro history, but for the rewriting of many important paragraphs of our common American history. Slow though it be, historical truth is no exception to the proverb. 
Here was Phyllis Wheatley's Miss Poem of 1767, addressed to the students of Harvard, her spirited encomiums upon George Washington and the revolutionary cause of John Morantz and the St. John's Day eulogy to the Brothers of the African Lodge, number 459, delivered at Boston in 1784. Here too were Lemuel Haynes' Vermont commentaries on the American Revolution and his learned sermons to his white congregation in Rutland, Vermont, and the sermons of the year 1808 by Reverend Absalom James of St. Thomas Church, Philadelphia, and Peter Williams of St. Philip's, New York, pioneer Episcopal rectors who spoke out in daring and influential ways on the abolition of the slave trade. Such things and many others are more than mere items of curiosity. They educate any receptive mind. Reinforcing these were still rarer items of Africana and foreign Negro interest. The volumes of Juan Latino, the best Latinist of Spain in the reign of Philip V, incumbent of the chair of poetry at the University of Granada, an author of poems printed Granite, 1573, and a book on Escurical published 1576, the Latin and Dutch treaties of Jacobus Eliza, captain, a native of West Coast Africa and graduate of the University of Leiden. Gustavus Vassa's celebrated autobiography that supplied so much of the evidence in 1796 for Granville Sharp's attack on slavery in the British colonies. Julian Raymond's Paris expose of the disabilities of the free people of color in the then French colony of Haiti and Baron de Vesti's cry of the fatherland, famous polymeric by the Secretary of Christophe that precipitated the Haitian struggle for independence. The cumulative effect of such evidences of scholarship and moral prowess is too weighty to be missed as exceptional. But weightier surely than evidence of individual talent and scholarship could ever be is the evidence of important collaboration and significant pioneer initiative in social service and reform in the efforts toward race emancipation, colonization, and race betterment. From neglect and respited pages come testimony to the black men and women who stood shoulder to shoulder, encouraging zeal, and often on a parody of intelligence and public talent with their notable white benefactors. There was already cited work of Vassa that aided so materially the efforts of Granville Sharp, the record of Paul Kufi, the Negro colonization pioneer associated so importantly with the establishment of Sierra Leone as a British colony for the occupancy of free people of color in West Africa the dramatic and history-making expose of John Baptiste Phillips, African graduate of Edinburgh, who compelled through Lord Bathurst in 1824 the enforcement of the Articles of Capitalization, guaranteeing freedom to the blacks of Trinidad. There is the record of the pioneer colonization project of Reverend Daniel Coker in conducting a voyage of 90 expatriates to West Africa in 1820 of the missionary efforts of Samuel Crowther in Sierra Leone first Anglican bishop of his diocese and that of the work of John Rushworm, a leader in the work and the foundation of the American Colonization Society. When we consider the facts, certain chapters of American history will have to be reopened. Just as black men were influential factors in the campaign against the slave trade, so they were among the earliest instigators of the abolition movement. Indeed, there was a dangerous calm between the agitation for the suppression of the slave trade and the beginning of the campaign for emancipation. During that interval, colored men were very influential in arousing the attention of public men who in turn aroused the conscience of the country. Continuously between 1808 and 1845, men like Prince Saunders, Peter Williams, Absalom Jones, Nathaniel Paul, and Bishop Barrett 
and Richard Allen, the founders of the Two Wings of African Methodism, spoke out with force and initiative, and men like Denmark Vesey, David Walker, and Nat Turner advocated and organized schemes for direct action. This culminated in the generally ignored but important conventions of free people of color in New York, Philadelphia, and other centers whose platforms and efforts are to the Negro as of great significance as the nationally cherished memories of Faneuil and Independence Hall. Then with abolition comes better documented and more recognized collaboration of Samuel R. Ward, William Wells Brown, Henry Highland Garnett, Martin Delaney, Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, and Frederick Douglass with their great colleagues, Tappan, Phillips, Summer, Mott, Stowe, and Garrison. But even with this latter group who came with the limelight of the national and international notice and thus to open comparison with the best minds of the generation, the public too often regards as a group of inspired illiterates, eloquent echoes of their abolitionist sponsors. For a true estimate of their ability and scholarship, however, one must go with the antiquarian to the files of the Anglo-African magazine, where page-by-page -page comparisons may be made. Their writings show Douglas, McCoon, Smith, Wells Brown, Delaney, Wilmot Blyton, and Alexander Cromell to have been as scholarly and versatile as any of the noted publicists with whom they were associated. All of them labor internationally, in the calls of their fellows to Scotland, England, France, Germany, and Africa. They carried their brilliant offensive of debate and propaganda, and with this came instance upon instance of signal foreign recognition from academic, scientific, and public and official sources. Delaney's principle of ethnology won public reception from learned societies, penitence discourses, and honorary doctorate from Heidelberg. Wells Brown's is three years mission the entry of the Salons of London and Paris, and Douglas's tours reception second only to Henry Ward Beecher's. After this great era of public interest and discussion, it was Alexander Cromell who, with the reaction already sitting in, first organized Negro Brain defensively through the founding of the American Negro Academy in 1874 at Washington. A New York boy whose zeal for education had suffered a rude shock when refused admission to the Episcopal Seminary by Bishop Underdunk. He had been befriended by John Jay and sent to Cambridge University, England for his education and ordination. On his return, he was beset with the idea of promoting race scholarship and the academy was the final result. It has continued ever since to be one of the bulwarks of our intellectual life, though unfortunately its members have had to spend too much of their energy and effort answering detractors and disproving popular fallacies. Only gradually have the men of this group been able to work toward pure scholarship. Taking a slightly different start, the Negro Society for Historical Research was later organized in New York and has succeeded in stimulating the connection from all parts of the world of books and documents dealing with the Negro. It is also brought together for the first time cooperatively in a single society, African, West Indian, and Afro-American scholars. Direct offshoots of the same effort are the extensive private collections of Henry P. Slaughter of Washington, the Reverend Charles D. Martin of Harlem, of Arthur Schomburg of Brooklyn, and the late John E. Bruce, who was the enthusiastic, far-seeing pioneer of this movement. Finally, and more recently, the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History has extended these efforts into a scientific research project of great achievement and promise. 
Under the direction of Dr. Carter G. Woodson, it has continuously maintained for nine years the publication of the Learned Quarterly, the Journal of Negro History, and with the assistance and recognition of two large educational foundations, has maintained research and published valuable monographs in Negro history. Almost keeping pace with the work of the scholarship has been the effort to popularize the results and to place before Negro youth in the school the true story of race, viscositude, struggle, and accomplishment. So that quite largely now the ambitions of Negro youth can be nourished on its own milk. Such work is a far cry from the puerile controversy and petty braggadocio with which the effort for race history first started. But a general as well as a racial lesson has been learned. We seem lately to have come at last to realize what the truly scientific attitude requires and to see that the race issue has been a plague on both our historical houses and that history cannot be properly written with either bias or counter bias. The blatant Caucasian racialist with his theories and assumptions of race superiority and dominance has in turn bred his Ethiopian counterpart, the rash and rabid amateur who has gallantly tried to prove half of the world's geniuses to have been Negroes and to trace the pedigree of the 19th century Americans from the Queens of Sheba. But fortunately today, there is on both sides of a really common cause, less of a sand of controversy and more of a dust of digging. Of course, a racial motive remains legitimately compatible with scientific method and aim. The work our race students now regard as important, they undertake very naturally to overcome in part certain handicaps of disparagement and omission to well-known popularize. Especially is this likely to be the effect of the latest and most fascinating of all of the attempts to open up the closed Negro past, namely the important study of African cultural origins and sources. The bigotry of civilization, which is the taproot of intellectual prejudice, begins far back and must be corrected at its source. Fundamentally, it has come about from that depreciation of Africa, which has sprung up from ignorance of her true role and position in human history and the early development of culture. The Negro has been a man without a history because he has been considered a man without a worthy culture. But a new notion of the cultural attainment and potentialities of the African stocks has recently come about, partly through the corrective influence of the more scientific study of African institutions and early cultural history, partly through growing appreciation of the skill and beauty, and in many cases, the historical priority of the African native crafts, and finally through the signal recognition of the first in France and Germany, and now very generally, the astonishing art of the African sculptures has received. And these fascinating new vistas with limited horizons lifting in all directions. The mind of the Negro has leapt forward faster than the slow clearings of scholarship will yet safely permit. But there is no doubt that here is a field